Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Joe Caputo from CII. Our topic today is enforcement against those who violate federal securities laws. Our special guest is Urska Veliconia, professor at Georgetown University Law Center. At Georgetown, Professor Veliconia teaches courses on securities regulation and enforcement, as well as other courses. Prior to becoming a professor at Georgetown, Professor Veliconia received her JD from Harvard Law School, clerked for Judge Stephen Williams on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and at several exceptional law schools, including Emory, the University of Chicago, and my own beloved Duke. Professor Veliconia recently testified before Congress on multiple bills related to strengthening enforcement against those who have violated securities laws. Today, we will be focusing our attention on several of those bills, which address the issue of co-cash, strengthening penalties in the enforcement actions, and attempting to incentivize good behavior from executives by targeting the compensation of bad actors. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today about these proposed bills. My first question involves the Kokesh case. But before we get to the main question, I thought I would give you the chance to briefly describe the Kokesh case and its significance to those who might not be familiar with the facts and implications of the case. Thank you, Joe, and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. So the Kokesh case was decided in June 2017, so it's been more than two years since the case was decided. Charles Kokesh was a registered investment advisor, much like many of the members uh, of your group. So he was a registered investment advisor. He operated two investment advisory funds that invested in four different business development companies. That's not actually that relevant to the case. Through these two funds, he solicited investments like investment advisors do from thousands of small investors. I believe some uh, DSEC complaint uh, tallied 21,000 investors and raised several hundred million dollars from those investors. Over a 12-year period from 95 to 2007, Kokesh overcharged fees, reimbursed expenses he shouldn't have reimbursed to himself and just plain flat out stole from, from investors. When the funds dissolve in 2007, as many funds dissolved in the sort of lead up to the financial crisis, it was discovered that he was in fact doing all those things, skimming from investors. The SEC initiates an investigation and within about two years files an enforcement action. So the investigation itself, the SEC sues Charles Kokesh in 2009. The case goes to trial. Kokesh loses a trial on all five counts, which is not that common for the SEC. Mm-hmm. Typically, they lose at least on one of the counts. Kokesh loses across the board. He's found uh, liable for securities fraud. And then once liability is established, the case goes on to a judge to decide on penalties. The district court judge here said that Kokesh stole approximately $35 million for investors. And did SEC ask then for those $35 million as disgorgement of ill-gotten gain? plus a civil fine on top of that of $35 million. That's what it's authorized under the statute. The maximum civil fine for serious fraud is the gross amount of pecuniary gain. So basically, you pay twice what you stole from investors as a penalty. So the judge takes that under consideration and decides, because of a case before the Kokesh case, a Gabelli case uh, decided by the Supreme Court in 2013, the judge could not award civil penalties for more than misconduct that took place five years before the SEC sued Kokesh. So they sued him in October 2009. You could only reach back for the civil fine to October 2004. So based on that, a judge says, okay, so we can only take into account for the fine portion October 04 to 2007 when the funds were dissolved. That's about $2.4 million. So that's the civil fine. But disgorgement is an equitable remedy. It's more open-ended. It's not subject to the same statute limitations. Therefore, Kokesh has to pay the entire $35 million in disgorgement. Kokesh appeals to the 10th Circuit. 
loses on 10th Circuit, appeals again to the Supreme Court, arguing that just like the civil penalty, disgorgement is also a penalty. Why does this matter, a penalty as opposed to a more an equitable remedy, a remedy designed to set things back as they, they were before the fraud, to reestablish the status quo? That matters because the five-year statute of limitations that applies to civil penalties applies to penalties. This defined as any penalty, forfeiture, or like. And the, if disgorgement is a penalty, then the same five-year statute of limitation applies to disgorgement as well. Supreme Court takes up this case and looks at disgorgement and the way it's been used in SEC proceedings and says and apply, adopts this three-part test. And it says, well, the SEC imposes disgorgement for violations of public law, not for private harm uh, for, for investors. Second, the SEC imposes disgorgement to deter misconduct, not to compensate. And finally, well, the SEC does sometimes distribute disgorgement to investors, but didn't in this case and isn't required under the sta any statute to distribute disgorgement. Therefore, disgorgement is not compensatory. And if it's not compensatory, it has to be a penalty, essentially. So if disgorgement is a penalty, it's subject to the same five-year statute of limitations provision. Now, that will have three direct sort of implications for securities enforcement. Implication number one, well, the five-year statute of limitations bars disgorgement that reaches beyond that period. So in the case of Charles Kokesh, the $35 million in disgorgement that, was, that the district court ordered was reduced to about $5 million, which for Charles Kokesh means he stole $35 million, he paid $7.5 million, he gets to keep the rest, which, by the way, he used to buy a large house in polo ponies in a, in, a large, in a large polo grounds, right? So he spent it the way fraudsters typically do spend their money, lavishly. So that's the first consequence. The second thing that, the second question that the Kokesh decision raises is, well, if disgorgement is a penalty under that same test, well, then other remedies that the SEC seeks that are not compensatory must also be penalties, such as injunctions, bars, maybe, maybe not, right? That question has been left unanswered. And finally, if disgorgement is a penalty, disgorgement in court cases was treated as an equitable remedy, therefore Courts have an inherent authority, inherent right to impose disgorgement. But if it's a penalty, it has to be statutory. It has to be authorized in a statute. And disgorgement in civil actions is not authorized in any statute because of this 40-year history, 50-year history almost by now, that disgorgement is an equitable remedy. So if that's the case, then the SEC can't get disgorgement in court cases at all. And there's currently cases pending in, in district court asking the courts to basically take that position. Thank you for providing that background on the case and the major implications of it. There are several proposals in the House designed to address the issues raised by Kokesh. Congressman Ben McAdams introduced a proposal to redefine disgorgement, as well as other remedies as equitable relief. Congressman Vicente Gonzalez's solution is to extend the statute of limitations from 5 to 10 years. In terms of these bills' impact to long-term investors, what are the pros and cons of these two proposals, and do you think some combination of them offers the best solution? Yeah, it's another very good question. There's currently a bunch of bills. Some of them are still you know, moving targets. We don't know exactly where they end up. But the two bills address two different questions. So the McAdams bill looks at disgorgement and like remedies that might be affected by the Kokesh decision. The ones I already mentioned, injunctions, officer and director bars, professional bars and the like. So what that bill tries to do is to extend the statute of limitations. And by labeling them as equitable, 
the intention is to make the statute of limitations essentially unlimited. One of the iterations of the bills that I've seen recently actually makes that explicit. We don't know if that's going to end up in the final bill, but that there would be no statute of limitations for disgorgement with the, under the idea that if you stole the money, at the least you should have to give it back, regardless of when you're caught. The Gonzalez bill targets only civil fines and extends the statute of limitations for civil fines from five years to 10 years. Right? It would address not the Kokesh decision, but the Gabelli decision that said the statutory, the statute of limitations for SEC cases is five years. The Gonzalez bill would extend it for the SEC to 10 years. Now, the five-year statute of limitations that we've been talking about is a catch-all federal statute of limitations that's included in the code to say, unless the Organic Act, unless the Act regulating the particular agency provides a different statute of limitations, then this backstop will apply. So for example, banking authorities have a 10-year statute of limitations for much of the misconduct that they prosecute. The CFPB has different statute limitations as well. So some of the agencies will have different statute limitations. The SEC to this day hasn't really had a specific one except for a couple of little particular violations. What that would do is say, we're going to set up a separate statute of limitations for the SEC as well, and it's going to be 10 years to reflect the fact that some violations take a very long time to detect and to investigate. Now, one of the objections to that second bill, the 10-year civil fine bill, is that 10 years is a long time, right? In particular, because that limitations period would be extended if the defendant can't be located. So potentially it's unlimited. And that raises some objections, right? With the, why do we have statute limitations in the first place? One of them is to ensure that we have high quality evidence, right? The evidence goes stale over time. In particular, testimonial evidence, what people remember, right? You might remember someone will introduce themselves, give you your name. If you ask the person two minutes later, what's my name? They might say, no <laughs> idea. But it's not that different from remembering events that may have taken place. The counter-argument in securities cases is that much of the document, much of the evidence is documentary and firms already have to keep records for 20 years. So yes and no, would that be an onerous change? The other counter-argument is that it provides less certainty when the statute of limitations is very long. Well, certainty is just the time lapses. Five years is as certain as 10 years. What the 10-year statute of limitations would do, it would potentially expose an investment advisor to a very long period of risk. Some violations are obvious frauds, like why Charles Kokesh did. Otherwise, are some version of carelessness, you know, putting in place systems that were less good than they should have been. And, you know, we, we, we know that sometimes rules end up being broken and that potentially exposes someone to 10 years of, of potential liability, even though they realize it was mistaken, they fixed it going forward. Finally, what the 10-year period does and what the five-year period does as well, it sort of lumps together everything, right? So what does the SEC have to do in this five-year period? It has to detect the violation. It has to investigate it and then it has to bring a suit. So some violations are very are typically detected very quickly. Think of insider trading. The SEC and, and FINRA actively monitor markets. Certain insider trading prosecutions are brought within a week. On the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum are foreign bribery violations, where only 4% of foreign bribery cases are brought with all violations within the five-year limitations period. The rest of the, case, the types of cases are somewhere in between. If we talk specifically about investment advisors, the group that might be most interested today, about, it's about 50-50. Half of all investment cases against investment advisors include at least the portions of the violations that are outside the limitations period. 
And if we just look at the disgorgement that's ordered in those cases, two-thirds of disgorgement is potentially outside the five-year limitations period. Why does it take longer to catch investment advisors? Well, one, the violations are more obscure. They're not instantaneously reported like public trading in the public markets. They might be happening on the ledgers of the investment advisor who will report its statements annually to the SEC, and if they might be examined once every three years or once every 10 years, depending on the size and so forth. But it might take quite some time for the SEC to catch the misconduct. So there, that's one delay. The second delay is the investigation delay. So in a private suit, in a securities class action, for example, those suits are typically filed within about two weeks of when the violation is reported. The SEC typically takes two years to file a case because in a private suit, discovery, this investigation happens after the suit has been filed. The SEC, on the other hand, does the investigation before they file the suit. And this investigation is something that defendants should be clamoring for, right? Is that probably the most significant due process protection in SEC enforcement actions. The last thing you want is to be sued by the SEC and then win after a five-year trial. You know, in those five years, you must have lost, you may have lost all of your customers and you might as well close shop anyway, right? It's, it's, a, it's a small victory to win after that long time. So that's sort of the risk with, that's what the, the limitations period are trying to do. And what the 10-year limitations period does is treats all violations essentially the same, right? Which might mean that sometimes the SEC might drag its feet. I suggested that being under an SEC, be, being sued by the SEC is, is serious business for an investment advisor. But being investigated also is serious business for an investment advisor. And if the statute of limitations is 10 years, that's a very long time when someone might be under SEC investigation. So that is a risk with a 10-year statute of limitations, that for certain types of violations, I'm thinking here primarily insider trading and market manipulation, 10 years is a long time. For others, foreign bribery, accounting fraud, yes, even investment advisors, 10 years might be what sort of balance, would provide the right balance. Thank you for your analysis of the bills and potential solutions. Moving on to Congressman Katie Porter's bill about increasing civil penalties. In your testimony, you mentioned that a particularly important aspect of the bill is adjusting penalties on violations that do not result in a large pecuniary gain, but result in substantial losses, and ones that result in a very large pecuniary gain, but have no easily identifiable losses. Why is it important to increase the SEC's statutory limits as opposed to using other mechanisms, such as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, to punish wrongdoers? What is the significance of the bill to long-term investors, and why should long-term investors support it? So the, the Katie Porter's bill does several different things. One, it raises penalty levels for all different tiers of violations. So securities violations are currently grouped into three different tiers by severity. The first tier is any violation. The second tier is a violation that exposes to serious risk of harm. And the third tier are essentially fraud-based violations that typically result in substantial investor losses. For that third tier of cases, the current maximum penalties are $189,000 per violation if the defendant is an individual and $947,000 if the defendant is a legal person. That's on a per violation basis or in the alternative, the gross amount of pecuniary gain from the violation. So I, if there's an amount that the defendant gained from the violation, you can double that as a civil fine. So you mentioned foreign corrupt bribery cases. So FCPA cases, you don't really need the Katie Porter bill because most FCPA, FCPA cases right now are paying the bulk of the penalties as disgorgement, right? So how do FCPA, so FCPA cases are foreign bribery case, cases? 
a firm will pay a bribe in order to win a lucrative contract, lucrative business abroad. And when the SEC prosecutes those cases, they'll typically include in a complaint, this is the amount of gain that the company obtained from getting this particular contract, right? And that gain is typically very large. So as a result, you're going to have FCPA cases that are going to have disgorgement orders of a billion dollars, $800 million, fairly large. And on top of that, the SEC could then double that amount to get to twice the disgorgement amount. So we're talking $2 billion. If this is a foreign bribery case, there might be a DOJ case that's parallel to this, and penalties begin to multiply in foreign bribery cases. Now, is that sufficient to deter foreign bribery? I would argue no, right? Why not? We don't have how many firms bribe when they conduct business abroad, but the estimates are virtually many, many, many. How many are caught? Very few. The estimate is about 6, 6%. And of those that are caught, and this is a study by economists Karpov, Lee, and Martin, of those who are caught, the average defendant pays less in fines than they benefited from breaking the law, right? So if you want deterrence, at the least, you should give everything back that you, that you benefited from. So what the Porter Bill tries to do is really try to take care of the types of violations that create very large losses, but are inefficient in that they don't generate those losses and that the defendant benefits from them, right? So it's not a, a, a zero value transfer. So for example, go, going back to Kokesh, he took money from investors and then he had that money. The, mon the money went from investors to Charles Kokesh and, and he got to spend it. So you could ask Kokesh to give that money back. But there are other types of violations that are much less efficient. So think about, say, accounting fraud, right? Why does accounting fraud happen? All sorts of reasons. Typically, it's things are going so-so. Maybe you're missing your numbers. Maybe you're trying to make new investments or a target of an potential target of an acquisition. So the management might fudge the numbers, right? So the, the typical circumstance in which accounting fraud happens are either pre-merger, pre-acquisition, or pre-bankruptcy. Right? Those are the sort of high-stress situations in which a firm might, might fudge the numbers. Why is the firm fudging the numbers? Because the execs are trying to do the right thing. How much are they benefited from benefiting from that? Typically not that much, or at least they're benefiting very little relative to the potential losses that can result from accounting fraud. Even Enron, I think th let's say take Enron as an example. And those insiders knew full well what they were doing. It wasn't just careless risk-taking. They were trading on insider information, and they all made about several hundred million dollars on insider trading. But Enron fraud cost investors $70 billion. So in a sense, it's really playing with fire in the desert when you're committing accounting fraud. Okay, so what's the appropriate sanction for accounting fraud? Is there pecuniary gain? Might be, but it's often very small. Okay, so then you can go, the SEC, if they're targeting accounting fraud, they can go on a per-violation basis. So what's a violation for accounting fraud? Is it a single case of accounting fraud? Is it each misrepresentation? Do we take into account how many investors are potentially affected? And do we multiply the $947,000 by the number of investors or by the number of violations, or it's all a single violation? That's unanswered, and there's no good answer in the statute. The statute just says per-violation. So if the SEC wanted to go after firms, for example, that are fudging their numbers and sanction them appropriately to really send a message like this is like playing with with matches in the desert. Don't like don't steal from your investors, but really don't manipulate your financials. Then it's for, it's unclear what the penalty might be. And it, the penalty doesn't really send a message that this is a different type of misconduct than others, that you're really hurting investors in markets beyond just your firm. So take greater care than you might otherwise. 
Moving on to Congressman Katie Porter's other bill, she recently proposed a bill that would ensure that irresponsible corporate executives, rather than shareholders, pay fines and penalties. The bill would, in essence, require reporting companies to disclose procedures to recoup costs paid for a covered fine or penalty, as well as amounts recovered by the company, from compensation paid to executive officers or explain why they have not established such procedures. Do you think such a rule should be passed by Congress, considering Dodd-Frank required the SEC to institute a clawback rule where there is executive misconduct, yet no rule has been implemented by the SEC? Yeah, that's an interesting omission by the SEC, right? So we currently have a clawback provision on the books that was adopted in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. The Dodd-Frank expands on that and clarifies certain portions and expands the group of executives potentially subject to clawback provisions. So a clawback provision is not a fine, is not a penalty, is not a sanction, is not you executive broke the law, therefore you're a defendant, you're a bad guy, you should pay the money back. Rather, it's you received compensation based on numbers that turned out to be false. Not just erroneous, right? Errors happen. Let's say you have a bank account with a bank and the bank transfers money into your account by mistake. You don't get to keep that money, typically. That money has to be returned. That's not the case for clawback. Clawbacks only have to be given back if they were given when there was a restatement and that restatement was a result of misconduct, right? So there was some misconduct happening in the firm for which the top executives, if they're not personally responsible, the least they're accountable for that. It happened under their watch, which might imply that the systems they were that were put in place were inadequate to some extent, or at the least the buck stops with that, right? So that the clawback idea is you then receive compensation. At the least, you should be have to give some of that portion of that compensation back and get what you would have been entitled to had the correct numbers been reported rather than the false higher numbers. So that's a Dodd-Frank clawback provision that the SEC has yet to implement. I'm not exactly sure of the nature of the delay. And the Katie Porter, that this disclosure bill sort of is on top of the clawback provision. So and it touches this question of accountability from a different angle. So the Dodd-Frank and the Sarbanes-Oxley clawbacks are clawbacks that the SEC can seek against individuals. Now, so that's a public action. It's not, they can't be, they're not privately enforced. So an investor cannot sue by the way, you need to clawback compensation. Executive contracts now do typically include clawback provisions. So the biggest clawbacks that have happened against like Wells Fargo and Equifax, those were all done under contracts, not by the SEC, right? So that the SEC isn't seeking clawbacks does not imply clawbacks don't happen. What the portable tries to do is to do is like, even if the SEC doesn't act on its authority to seek a clawback provision, it would be useful to know are firms doing that sort of thing? Are firms seeking reimbursement from their executives in the event of a misconduct that happened at the company? Now, it's disclosure, but it's disclosure with the goal of changing substantive behavior, right? And we've done this sort of disclosure a fair amount recently. In the Dodd-Frank Act, for example, the pay ratio disclosure rules, right? The, the, the argument was investors care about the ratio in compensation between the median employee and the chief executive. And the investors, do they care? Maybe not as investors. They might care as citizens or as employees of that firm, or they might just be curious. Sort of, it's a, it's a public interest thing rather than perhaps an investor thing. The conflict minerals rule is another disclosure-based provision that's really designed to stop firms from buying conflict minerals rather than about informing investors what the firms are doing, right? So it's changing behavior through disclosure. Um, so a counter argument to the poor bill might be, 
well, if this is your objective, why are you doing it through disclosure? Why not just put a mandate in place? Uh, isn't this just covering for, for what you're really doing? And also, isn't this just putting an onus, a cost on firms that they don't necessarily want to bear? And if this is truly in the investor's interest, aren't firms going to disclose this anyway? They're not currently disclosed. Therefore, it can't be in the investor's interest. So, so that's sort of the, the open questions about the particular that makes a lot of sense. That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I'd like to thank our special guest, Professor Erska Velikonia of Georgetown University Law Center. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast or the Council of Institutional Investors' views, please feel free to contact our general counsel, Jeff Mahoney, at jeff at cii.org. Until next time, I'm Joe Caputo. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.